Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Haywood. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. India's economic liberalization began in the early 1990s and included industrial deregulation, reduced control on foreign trade and investment, and privatization of state-owned enterprises. Moreover, India is known to have a diversified financial sector undergoing rapid expansion with strong growth of existing financial services firms, as well as new entries entering the market and the introduction of new policies and reforms. The government of India has introduced several reforms to liberalise, regulate and enhance this sector. With a combined push by the government and the private sector, India is undoubtedly one of the world's most vibrant capital market scenes. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Benjamin Parkin, South Asia correspondent of the Financial Times. Ben talks to us about how he ended up in India and he gives us his unique perspectives from his front row seat to all of the action there in New Delhi. We touch on how India dealt with COVID, India's tech startup scene, India's COP targets, and Ben's views on the various reforms of the Modi administration, including GST and demonetization. I'm Ben Haywood, and you're listening to Inside India. Welcome, Ben. It's great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Good stuff. Well, I'm very excited to be kicking off season two of the podcast with you. My chance or my turn to ask you the questions this time. You're usually the one asking the questions. But listen, you're perhaps one of the best qualified to speak about the Indian economy. You have a front row seat there in in New Delhi. Of course, you're the South Asia correspondent for the FT and you've been in the seat for a couple of years. But taking it back a step, what's your background and, and how did you end up with the FT in India? Well, before I moved to India, I was actually covering agriculture and it was interesting. India came up a lot because even though it's not a big player in global markets, it's one of the biggest producers and consumers of all sorts of things, wheat and sugar. So it was always part of my job in one way or another to write about India. And yeah, so when I moved here, I was writing about tax and trade, not for the FT. And so I spent a lot of time sitting in kind of government offices, waiting to be seen by some official, which was an interesting induction into working here. And then I moved to Mumbai. I had about all of eight months before the pandemic hit. And now I've been back in Delhi for a few months. So I've been in India since late 2018. Fantastic stuff. So pretty much the entirety of COVID spent in Delhi. And COVID is actually something we'll touch upon a little later in the episode. But kicking things off and not holding back. I want to go straight into the politics here. Uh, One of the key pillars of the Modi administration over the last six years has been his reform agenda. We could host a three-hour podcast in itself talking about the Modi reforms. But in your eyes, Ben, what do you think has been the most interesting or the most important or progressive of the reforms um, of the last six years or so? In my role when I'm talking to businesses and so on, the two that come up the most are GST and the bankruptcy code. So GST was the sales tax reform introduced in 2017 that 
for the first time, unified tax collection across what had previously been a kind of patchwork of different state systems and really very kind of labyrinthine for doing business and so on. So that was a big step that, you know, is going to have very important long-term implications in terms of boosting tax collection and so on, which is a vital goal for the government and its development agenda. It was criticized quite a bit in the way it was rolled out. Some of the exporting states say they've been disadvantaged because the taxes are being collected at the consumption. And some businesses say that it was kind of glitchy and so on. But I think it's been a huge change and one that's here to stay. The IBC, the the bankruptcy code, was introduced in 2016. Before that, I mean, it was very difficult if you were a bank or a lender and you, a company, didn't pay back a loan they owed you. It was very difficult to get it back. So that introduced a clear legal mechanism for you to take them to court and eventually take over the company and recover what you can. Again, it's been slow. It's been painful to an extent. But I think it's a long-term reform that is vital for the economy. I agree. And I think both of these reforms have certainly contributed to India climbing up the World Bank's ease of doing business, for instance, over the last few years. So certainly two of the more successful reforms. Unfortunately, though, not all of them have been perhaps as well executed. And I think that brings me nicely to demonetization and the farm reforms. I think both, you'll agree, were well-intentioned, but have clearly faced problems down the line. If you could talk to us a little bit more about each of these reforms and perhaps why they didn't go to plan as you see it. Yeah, so a lot has been said and researched and written about demonetization. Again, it predates my time in India, but it sounds like it would have been quite something to have been there at the time. Yeah, I think there are a lot of strong opinions on either side about whether it was a good move or not. I mean, just for context, the decision to very suddenly invalidate a lot of the country's currency in circulation and replace it. The idea being variously to kind of weed out corruption and kind of force the sort of the black money out of the system and also to formalize the economy by making sure that the cash in circulation was sort of accounted for. It was very painful for a lot of businesses and a lot of people. And I think there are a lot of economists who feel that it didn't set out what it achieved to do. If you speak to a payments company, for example, though, they're going to say it was great because, you know, they fundamentally had helped to force money into the financial system in a way that they, you know, benefited them. Now, agricultural reform is an interesting one. These three big laws that were passed in late 2020 to basically deregulate to a degree what was a very government-controlled agricultural market and increase the role of private companies, create mechanisms for farmers to deal directly with companies rather than state intermediaries. Now, it provoked an enormous backlash from farmers who were protesting in and around Delhi for more than a year. And ultimately, Modi repealed the laws last year. So I guess with both of those, what they point to is perhaps with this government, they have a very clear sense of what they want to do. And they are very keen to do it quickly and decisively. They're having a strong majority in parliament and so on, and Modi being a popular leader. However, you know, in a case like agricultural reforms, I think the criticism is that they didn't do enough to build the consensus needed for a measure like that before they implemented it, hence why they ultimately backtracked. Yeah, no, understood. And of course, look, I don't think it takes a rocket science to work out 
you know, there are big elections this year in places like UP and the Punjab, two of the biggest farming states of the country. So, you know, perhaps Modi had half an eye on those as well. Anyway, leaving reforms to one side for a moment, is like I said, we could spend an entire episode just talking about the reforms. But India is, is perceived to be one of the last great, vast, scalable growth stories over the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years. And a part of that growth story, of course, is, is the upward social mobility of many of the current working class of India, who, you know, in the next few years will become the emerging middle class. And we're talking about literally hundreds of millions of people here. You're sitting there on the ground in India. A, do you think the growth everyone talks about over the next few years is achievable? Is it going to happen? A very basic question. And B, perhaps a harder question here. Uh, do you think the average Indian is partaking in this growth today? Or is the average Indian getting wealthier? Is there more money hitting the pocket of the average man each month? It's a vitally important question and a very difficult one to answer. Of course, COVID notwithstanding, incomes have been rising and we've been seeing an amazing phenomenon of people coming out of poverty. You know, from a business perspective, just think about how many people will have opened bank accounts in the last few years, will have bought a mobile phone in the last few years and taken kind of steps towards using e-commerce or whatever it is. It's an incredible phenomenon and one that isn't going to be repeated in any other country in the world anytime soon. But yes, the reality is also that growth was slowing even before the pandemic, right? It had gone from about 8% in 2016 to 4% in 2019. So there was already some clouds in what is a very rosy economic picture. And with COVID, there was a big recession in 2020. It was very painful for a lot of people, particularly the people who are still dependent on the informal economy, which is the plurality, if not majority, of the, of the country. And they saw their incomes often disappear, if not fall sharply. And there's lots of research about scary numbers of people falling back into poverty. So the question is now, with growth picking up again, and India is this year supposed to reclaim its title as the world's fastest growing economy, will they be able to partake in that growth story like they were before? And I think it's a vigorous debate on both sides. And I haven't got my mind made up. I hope so. But I think there are some real scars in the economy and you know, people are hurting still. That said, if you talk to businesses of all kinds, they'll often tell you that you know, it's sort of the boom days at the moment. So like this latest wave notwithstanding, that things have really roared back in the past six months or so. So let's see. And it's a hugely important question for the world, really, because we're talking about, like you said, hundreds of millions of people coming out of poverty and just becoming kind of a, a global growth engine. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's therefore probably more of a case of the long bending arc of progressive growth rather than almost overnight millionaires being created up and down the country, which of course is happening a little bit too. But yeah, it is a story I think that will play out as like we've just said over, over many years to come. I mentioned it earlier in the episode and I, th I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about COVID. It, it was very well covered, you know, the India COVID story here in, in the Western press. India probably, it would be fair to say, has had multiple approaches to COVID, much like the rest of the world. Um, there was a very harsh lockdown in March 2020. 
and a very, very big, bad, ugly second wave in May of June last year. But for the most part, certainly in the last year or since since that big spike in May or June 2020, one, the economy has been open and restrictions have been off the cards. And that seems to have paid off. The economy is picking up at a rapid clip. Um, it's set to be the world's fastest growing major economy this year. Like I mentioned at the start of the episode, you spent most of, of COVID in India. Um, a, how well do you think India has dealt with COVID? And B, I guess tricky question. Has it been the right way to deal with it or not? Yeah, so going back to March 2020, it was very dramatic. See, hearing that the prime minister was going to be making an address to the nation and wondering, oh, what's going to happen? And then watching the TV to see that everything was going to shut down from midnight, I think about four hours after his speech. And it was a big, big economic shock. And of course, one that was repeated around the world. And then, yes, the government then kind of backed away from that very dramatic centralized approach and left it more to states to take their own measures when the second wave started to pick up. And from a business perspective, that was also tough because it was less predictable. So at the first wave, if you were a business, you just kind of went into hibernation mode as much as possible, assuming you're not an essential business, right? During the second wave, you could perhaps keep operating at limited capacity but you were often dealing with sickness in your family or among your employees. And so it was harder to operate. And say you're dealing with a business in another state, all of a sudden they go into some kind of lockdown and then you, you know, an order you were supposed to ship to them might get disrupted. So it was a difficult time. But yes, the growth has really picked up in the months since. Some of it, of course, it has to be said, is coming from a relatively low base given the contraction that happened before. But I think, again, there are some big long-term questions, you know, the way that schooling has been disrupted, for example, what will that mean, not just a year or two from now, but five, 10 years from now? Absolutely. And circling back to the economy now, I think one of the key themes, and this could be a COVID phenomenon, I think it was probably happening pre-COVID as well, is Bangalore, places like Bangalore and South India in particular, is emerging as a little bit of a, a kind of tech hub. 90-odd unicorns created in the last year and a half. I think it's the third biggest producer of unicorns globally. Um, $40 billion roughly of money pouring into Indian startups in 2021. I mean, these are big numbers by any measure. Um, India's startup scene is unquestionably exploding at the moment. And I think there are a few things at play here. Uh, and I'll let you answer the question. But what do you think is going on? Why is India's tech scene coming of age now today? Yeah, it really is quite amazing just how quickly how much activity is to happening in private markets and now, of course, in public markets with over the past six months or so, the first of these kind of new tech startups listing. Zomato in mid last year had a very successful listing. Paytm towards the end of last year had a less successful listing. But it's a maturing market. And it's a good question, why is this happening? I mean, one possible reason that people discuss is just internal factors. These companies are a few years old now. They've built up a certain amount of scale. They built up a loyal enough customer base. And so this is a natural organic evolution. Another possible explanation is, of course, that just the amount of liquidity we've seen around the world and particularly in funds in the US that are just desperate for somewhere to put some money. So a lot of it's been coming into India among other countries. 
and it's had a big impact here in terms of allowing companies to fundraise and scale, etc. Another interesting explanation, a factor rather, is the what's happened in China. Because when you think about from a, an investor perspective, India often, perhaps lazily, is sort of seen as the quote-unquote next China among certain foreign investors. And in tech, that's the attitude that a lot have had, you know, we'll invest in India, but like China right now is the kind of priority. But of course, it's become more difficult to invest in China for various reasons, of which I'm not an expert, but there's been this big crackdown in tech over the past sort of 18 months or so. And so investors are thinking, if I invest in a startup in China now, and it uh, gets kind of hit with some regulation six months down the line, where else could I look to invest instead? And India is a natural candidate. So there's been some of that. And yeah, it's been a really fascinating development. And just in a city like Delhi, the way in which so many tech services are now part of daily life in a way that wouldn't have been the case a few years ago is quite extraordinary. Yeah, and I think exactly to that point, it doesn't show any signs of stopping. I think the number of listings mooted for this year is, is growing by the day. Bangalore clearly growing as one of Asia's leading, if not Asia's leading tech hub, the kind of Silicon Valley of India, I guess. So it really is an exciting time for you as a commentator to be watching and, and writing about this stuff. Yeah, it is. And it will be interesting to see what happens this year, because last year was a record year, I think, for tech IPOs. I mean, Paytm list raising $2 billion or whatever it was, you know, a huge, huge amount, unprecedented before. But it didn't go to plan. Their, their shares have fallen and fallen. So will that have a bit of a, a cooling effect in the coming months on other startups? I don't know. There are some others like Oyo who are expected to go to market, which will be very interesting to watch. They've also had some kind of high profile struggles and they're often compared. Oh, sorry, for those who don't know, Oyo being a kind of a, a hotel booking platform that at one point was kind of looked set to become the largest hotel chain in the world by the number of rooms. They've since scaled back their ambitions a bit, but companies like that, there'll be a lot of investor interest and you know, retail investors are very keen for ways to participate in this tech story. I guess the question is, for a lot of companies, we talk about India as a country of 1.4 billion people. But as I think has been said on your podcast before, when you're a company really, and particularly with some of these tech services, you're actually targeting relatively affluent urban consumers. So we're talking about a few tens of millions of consumers. Given that, how long will it take for these companies to build up to the kind of scale we've seen in a country like China? I don't know the answer, but it's a really interesting question. I totally agree with you. And I think it kind of plays into what we were speaking about a little earlier in the episode about, you know, just how quickly are those next 200 million working class Indians um, going to cross the poverty line into the emerging middle class? And I think it's a question for all of these tech companies building their businesses they're now looking at scale, you know, and they're all asking themselves, is this a scalable business um, in India at the moment in five years time? So yes, yeah, certainly a sector and a theme that, that's worth watching in the months and years to come. I want to go down a slightly different path now, but a no less important path, um, certainly over the next few years, and that's India's energy mix. I know this is a topic close to your heart. It's been given quite a lot of high profile attention um, last year, particularly in the FT especially around the time of COP. India and Modi committed to cleaning up India's energy mix, um, perhaps not at the clip that Western nations wanted to see. But, you know, India is, is heavily reliant on coal. There is a big infrastructure plan being drawn up to 
shift to nuclear, to uh, more renewable forms of energy, the Indian government does have to balance the near impossible task of improving the lives of its citizens um, every day whilst cleaning up and greening up its, its energy mix. What is your take on India's energy problems, in inverted comma, or the India energy question? Um, do you think it's going to be able to deliver on its intended COP targets? Or do you believe it's a kind of near impossible task? Yeah, it's one of my favorite <laughs> subjects. It's really fascinating. I think it's one that's not well understood outside of India. And I think that people in India feel, understandably, the government and others that their country's needs from an energy perspective have been misrepresented. For background, yes, at COP, there was a lot of pressure to commit to phasing out coal. And in the end, the agreement was to phase down coal. And you know there were a number of countries, China and India, who were reluctant to take that step towards phasing out. The reason being, as you said, India is a massive coal consumer. It's one of the largest in the world. And it doesn't have, as it stands, other sources of energy. And when you think about India is expected to be the fastest growing energy consumer over the next decade. And as it stands, its citizens' energy consumption is a fraction of that of Europe or, or North America. So they're going to have enormous needs for more power to deliver growth, to deliver energy security. Here in central Delhi, I have power cuts once a day. You forget like in a, you know, in a rural area. So it's a really important question and it, it gets to the heart of the kind of how to transition equitably towards cleaner energy. So yes, Modi has announced that his government plans to build 500 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity in the coming years by 2030. It's a huge task. A lot will have to change in order for that to be achievable, but they've already built considerable amounts. And there's a lot of private sector momentum now behind battery capacity and so on. And some big fossil fuel companies that are starting to kind of you set out targets for clean energy investment themselves. So there's a lot of momentum. And I think it'll be interesting to see how quickly India's green energy sector scales up. But the fact of the matter is, even if India were to meet its most ambitious renewable energy targets, you'd still have a massive need for coal. So I think currently coal is about 70% of power generation and it would fall to maybe half. So that means. India is going to be consuming a lot more coal for years to come. But as it stands, there's no alternative for that. They're, with technological advancements and stuff, that process may speed up and their phasing down may accelerate. There's an interesting question about power plants that are being built. A lot of them are actually suffering from kind of overcapacity. So even though India does need coal, does it need how many more coal power plants does it actually need? And that's something where there could maybe be some more work done. Yes. You hear a lot about India being one of the largest users or, or producers of solar power as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see how India's energy mix changes in, in the years to come. And we're talking now in late January. Um, I know there's a budget coming up next month where there is expected to be some noise on, on the topic on energy's India's infrastructure plan. So I guess... Again, another important couple of years for India from the perspective of energy, um, especially for commentators like yourself to watch out for. Now, one thing I really wanted to speak to you about today, Ben, is I guess it's the reporting on India from the Western press, the Western media at times, 
can have certain biases. We saw this last summer during the pandemic. There were big headlines and, and stories of bodies floating down the Ganges, piling high in the streets during the COVID spike. And I'm not absolutely not denying that this didn't happen. It clearly did happen. Um, but I think the consensus, certainly when I speak to my colleagues in India, is that these were very much kind of isolated incidents, but they're kind of painted with a huge brush of generalization um, when it comes to India. And I guess, you know, these are the stories that grab headlines in the West. You know, media is a business. They need to sell papers or subscriptions or whatever. So I guess the question I would want to ask you is, where does this narrative of India seem to come from? Why, why do you think this is? Is it to do with India being a kind of an emerging third world country that isn't perhaps that well understood here in the Western world? I'd be really keen and interested to get your take on this. Yeah, it's a really important question and one that we have to think about every day. I think in India, of course, it's particularly important because the country has been misrepresented for so long and it's an enormous responsibility to try and give a fair picture of the various things that are happening, whether it's business-wise, economically, politically, culturally. I think one thing that frustrates me is certain tropes that I'm, I hear every day, including from Indians often, that things don't work well, things are a bit kind of chaotic or whatever. I think that's very lazy. Things work remarkably well. Depends what we're talking about. But I mean, think about the elections that are about to happen with hundreds of millions of people voting. That kind of stuff is just, it's amazing how it pulled off. You think about the elections in the US last year and how much controversy there was around those in India. It's quite remarkable, the system. That's just one example. So I think there are some tropes that do get repeated. On the question of the COVID, I mean, I think it's interesting, the example you gave, a lot of those, that reporting on bodies in the Ganges and stuff, that was coming from local media, often local language, Hindi media in states like Uttar Pradesh who were doing the very difficult and important work of going to parts of the country that were not being covered and, and trying to get to the bottom of what was happening there. And there was a real health crisis. So I think that has to be recognized. Now, no doubt in the way that that was then picked up and circulated around the world, say, I mean, I wasn't watching the nightly news in the UK or wherever, or the US, but I'm sure there was an element of sensationalism. But I think, yeah, there's also the fact that Sometimes our job can involve reporting on things that people, whether officials or otherwise, don't want to hear about without wanting to sound too kind of self-righteous. And so it can get difficult. But yeah, it's a very delicate balancing act. And like I said, there is an enormous responsibility. Absolutely. And I think one of the beauties of India is it is a functional democracy with freedom of press. And I think that's a big draw for investors and it gives them a great deal of comfort. So, you know, I would add that to kind of my last point. Wrapping things up now, Ben, and, and this is something I did in season one, and it seemed to work quite nicely, um, is one question that I ask all of my guests that come on the podcast is, what would you like my listeners to think differently about India? You know, what preconceptions or, or topics would you like to bust on India or myths that you would like to bust? And if my listeners could come away thinking one thing perhaps slightly differently in India from you living on the ground there, what would it be? Well, I've given one example already, but one thing I'll say, I don't know if this is a, a misconception, but I think, and this has been said on your podcast before, so I'm not claiming to be original here, but it's a vitally important point. 
is that it's very hard to generalize about a country of 1.4 billion people, right? I mean, in many respects, it's a sort of continent and things that are true in Punjab may not be true in Kerala or, and vice versa. So it's very hard as a journalist, as a business person, as a policymaker to understand just the, the level of nuance you need. So of course, it sort of undermines everything I've said on this podcast because I'm talking about India. But really, you think about the way we talk about the amount of detail that people would go into on, say, Croatia versus France or something, right, in Europe. You don't see that level of nuance in analyzing Indian states, and that needs to be there, right? People talking different languages, different histories, different identities. But of course, it's all, there's the shared overarching, shared identity and, and history and of India, which pins it all together. And so I think that's an important point. And it's an impossible task to kind of, for one person to sufficiently get to the bottom of that diversity, but you have to be very mindful of it. Yeah, I think it's an amazing point to make. And having been lucky enough to kind of spend some time traveling around India, you absolutely see that from state to state, north to south, they're almost two completely different countries. But clearly, yeah, under one shared flag and identity. Um, I'm actually going to be really cheeky and take this opportunity to ask you one final question. And that's, what are the big themes to watch out for in India for 2022? Um, as the country, hopefully, or as the world, hopefully emerges from the pandemic. And I guess an extension of that question is, is what are the things that you have on your list of things to write about in India this year? Well, just so you know, my predictions always turn out to be inaccurate. So it's, if I say something's going to happen, then expect for the opposite. But I think I'm thinking a lot about the elections that are coming up over the next few weeks. There's five state elections, UP being the largest state for 200 million people, very important politically. And I'm looking forward to reporting on that and seeing what happens there. And that'll have big implications for the general elections in a couple of years' time. I think watching this clean energy transition that we've talked about will be an important one. And COVID, <laughs> enough said. Let's see what happens there. Yeah, hopefully no more nasty strains of this, of this virus that are going to crop up and all those kind of bad things stay away. Anyway, Ben, we'll wrap things up there. It was a fascinating discussion. I really, really enjoyed talking with you today. Like I said, you've got a front row seat of the action there in Delhi. So it'd be great to keep the conversation going and perhaps in seasons to come, always check back in with you for, for further discussions. But best of luck on reporting and, and with everything this year, at the big elections coming up, which I look forward to reading your take on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me and um, look forward to hearing the coming episodes with your upcoming guests. Good stuff. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Bye. You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed, wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks' time. Until then, stay safe.